Lord God, once again we thank you, as has been said and as has been sung, for all that you do for us. And Lord, especially today as we come before you for the partake of the Lord's Supper and just remembering all that you've done for us and, and taking time out of our busy lives and, and focusing on what's really important in our lives and what should drive us as believers in our daily walks. So we ask that you would speak to us, Lord God, through this time that we have together in your word and in communion, and it's in your name we pray, amen. Well, open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and if you don't have a Bible, there's a Black Pew Bible there, and like I said, if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that home, that's our gift to you, or if you just want to leave it there, then do that too for the next person. But as I said, we're going to be taking time away from our study and really focusing on communion and what it means. But before we get to that, because I think it's important, have you ever been accused of having a selective memory? (laughs) All the husbands for sure, right? You know, it's actually, psychology says we all have selective memories, by the way. So it's not just those of us who want to only remember the things that are good, right? But on the, on the negative side, which is why you all laughed, having a selective memory is talking about when we want to forget something conveniently that's a negative against us, right? I've, like you, I've been accused of having that in my house by somebody, but I won't mention her name, that I've had a selective, <laughs> selective memory. But it's not always bad to have a selective memory, right? I mean, who wants to remember negative things in our life or, you know, negative and hurtful things as well. I mean, some people will spend, you know, countless hours in therapy and money to erase memories, and rightfully so, because they have just, you know, they bring up things that happen that aren't so nice. And we have, all of us go through that. We have memories of people that we love who have passed away and how that affects us both in a negative aspect, but when we think about it, it also can bring a smile to our face. And so this morning in the text before us, we're going to be asked to remember something, and it's a traumatic experience, and I think because we're so far removed from it, we tend to forget how traumatic the experience was. But the trauma of that should have a positive effect on us, and I think that's why we're asked in Scripture to do this, not only to remember it, but to act it out, right? One of the ways that we can learn as people is by acting things out, right? Getting hands-on and doing it. Some of us are great at just, you know, having a good memory when someone tells us we remember. And then there's some of us that, you know, we need to maybe repeat it. We need to write it down. We need to act it out in some way so that the memory stays with us in a more vivid way. And as I said this morning, we're going to look at a, a very specific thing that the Lord tells us to remember. And it is the greatest thing that each and every one of us can always keep at the forefront of our minds. And that's why I think it's been one of the sacraments of the church that the church is told to do always, and as we'll see, we're told to do it until the Lord returns. So let's look at our text, and that's going to be in 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23. And we'll read through, I'll probably read all the way through to verse 34, just to get an understanding of what's going on, and then we'll come back and look at the individual parts. Now just by way of context, the Apostle Paul is addressing a problem in the church, Sometimes we, we read this, but most of the times when we read this, it's during communion, and we forget the broader picture, that the church was coming together, and they would have what was called maybe like the, a love feast or a meal with the church, like a big church potluck. 
And so everybody would come and partake of that. Then afterwards, they would have the Lord's Supper or communion. And so they were doing this in an unworthy manner by really not respecting one another. And so the Apostle Paul is addressing this. And not only that, they were looking at it not in the way that it should be looked at and understood in the context of what the communion really means. And so we're going to, we come into the text knowing that this is what the Apostle Paul is addressing. He's correcting an abuse within this Corinthian church. And so starting in verse 23, the Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. So he's recalling an event from the past and sharing it with the church here. He's reminding them what Jesus did. And in verse 24, it says, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat and drink, excuse me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord is in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if, you judge, but if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we judge, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with this world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If any is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. So again, the Apostle Paul is addressing the issue of the Lord's Supper or communion as we call it. So let's go back a little bit, back down to verse 23 and talk a little bit about communion. And I know a lot of us are like, yeah, we know about communion, but again, it's, it's good to go back and remember it and then we're going to act it out as we partake of communion because it's very significant. It is central to the gospel. It is one, I was thinking this is one reason why we're here and why we sung all those songs that we sing and why we live for the Lord, it's all about what the Lord's sacrifice was or what it meant. So what does communion signify or what does communion mean, right? We've, uh, maybe some of us have been brought up in different denominations and they put a different emphasis on communion, but we're going to try to stay close to, well, we're going to stay close to the text, I should say. And what exactly does communion mean? I mean, if we take communion, does that mean we're saved, we're believers because we take it? Or, and if we don't take it, we're, we're not going to get saved? What does all that mean? Again, depending on where you come from in your denomination, they might have a different understanding. And so let's see what the scripture says about communion. Well, the first thing that I want to note, and this is going to come up on the screen, is that communion signifies a promise from God. It's a promise of God. Right? This was prophesied in the Old Testament by not a few prophets. And let's look at a couple prophets that spoke about the significance of communion and what's behind the meaning of it, starting in with our prophet Isaiah. So turn to Isaiah chapter 53, 
And we're going to look at verses 4 through 6, where communion signifies the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's important because God promised that this was going to happen. Back in Isaiah chapter 53, starting in verse 4, the prophet writes this, Surely our grief he himself bore, speaking of the suffering servant, Jesus, and our sorrows he carried. So he's talking as if this has already happened, but we know Isaiah you know, was hundreds of years before Jesus was born. So he's talking about the future. So surely our grief he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And so there the prophet Isaiah is prophesying about a, a future, someone that is going to suffer in the future. And obviously we know now in hindsight that he was speaking of Jesus. And so communion signifies that there's a promise that God kept. Not only that, if you turn to the next prophet, prophet Jeremiah, turn with me to chapter 31 and look at verse 31. Because Jeremiah also prophesies of this future coming Messiah, and he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day. I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with them, the house of Israel, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and on their heart, and I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And as we'll see in a moment, this is the new covenant that Jesus is going to speak about as we look back at our text in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So what does communion signify? Number one, it signifies the promise of God. Secondly, it signifies Jesus giving up himself for us. Look at verse 24 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So the Apostle Paul quoting Jesus, he says, And when he had given thanks, he broke it, the bread, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So the bread that Jesus took symbolically represents Jesus giving himself up for each and every one of us. And this is exactly what Jesus came for into this world, right? Sometimes we forget why Jesus came. Jesus came to suffer. As a matter of fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, one of, that's one of the first things that's said to his parents. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, it says, So she will bear a son. This is the angel speaking to Joseph, Jesus' earthly father. He says, So... She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. And as you know, he saves his people from their sins by dying on the cross, which we'll talk about in a few moments. So early on, the angels proclaimed it. And not only that, John the Baptist in the Gospel of John chapter 1, look at verse 29 if you'd like to turn there with me. When he sees Jesus coming for the first time, 
now this is Jesus has reached adulthood. Look at what John says. It says, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world. And if you know, the Lamb of God was the Passover Lamb, the Lamb that was going to be sacrificed. And so John the Baptist recognized Jesus as coming to die, to be the new Passover Lamb, to take away the sins of the world. So communion signifies Jesus giving up himself for us. This was the very purpose he came into this world. So when we partake of the bread, we're remembering that Jesus' body was broken, was given for each and every one of us. Thirdly, communion signifies Jesus inaugurating the new covenant, that new covenant that I read about in Jeremiah 31. Look at what Jesus says in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians. Oh, it's verse 25, here it is. He says, in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So this cup that Jesus had was filled with wine. It was symbolic of the blood of Jesus Christ. And this cup was what the blood that ratified that new covenant. It made that new covenant between God and man, as Jeremiah says in verse 31. And there's so many verses that talk about what exactly the blood of Jesus Christ does for us. Not only did it ratify this new covenant between God and man, which is probably the most important thing, reconciling us to God. Just let me give you a few other things to note. Jesus' blood cleanses us from our sins forever. Cleanses us from our sins forever. Just think about that for a moment. The sins that you and I have committed in the past will commit today and in the future. If we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and believe on what he did, then our sins will be covered forever or cleansed from forever. Not only that, Jesus' blood delivers us from sin to salvation. We're no longer bound to sin. We're no longer suffering for our sins or will suffer for our sins. We are now saved. Jesus' blood delivers us from death to life. I always sing a song like that, right? From death to life. I don't know the rest of it, so I'm not going to mess it up, but you'll know it if you remember that. So once we were dead in trespasses and sins, we were bound to die for all eternity and be separated from God. But God, in his love for us, when Christ bore our sins and died on the cross and his blood ratified this new covenant, we were taken from death to life. Each and every one of us who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ will live for all eternity with the Lord. That's what he's already done for us. Fourthly, Another thing that blood does, it delivers us from Satan's realm to God's eternal kingdom. It's another way of saying from death to life. We're no longer under the, under the authority of Satan or a subject to Satan. We now live in God's eternal kingdom now, even at this moment. And like I said at the very beginning of this, most importantly, we have now been reconciled to God because nothing else we could do can reconcile us to God. There's no amount of good works that you and I can do that can reconcile us to God. Even taking communion doesn't reconcile us to God because communion is just symbolic of what Jesus has already done. So there's no good that you and I could do to reconcile ourselves to God. We were lost without hope for all eternity unless somebody stepped in and, filled, and took our place. And that's exactly what the Lord has done. So this is what 
communion signifies. Again, the, it signifies the promise of God. It signifies Jesus giving up himself for us. And it signifies Jesus inaugurating this new covenant. So, why do we celebrate communion? Since these things are all done, and it doesn't, you know, quote-unquote, do anything for us, like it doesn't save us, as I mentioned at the beginning, we don't take communion to be saved. We don't take communion to be on God's good graces. Why do we celebrate communion? Well, look at verse 26. Jesus tells us, he says, For often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there's the answer. We are reminded, first of all, this is why we do it. This is why I started off with that talking about memory, selective memory. We are reminded of what Jesus did for us. We so often can forget what Jesus has done for us or maybe minimize it in our own life just because we're so far removed from it. And that's why it's good to gather often so that we are constantly reminded of what the Lord has done. We are reminded what Jesus did for us. Jesus, again, has given his body for us, right? He took our place. He became our substitute. That's what we're remembering. Remembering that, you know, I could do, again, I could do nothing to atone for my sin. I could do nothing to be right for God. It is what Jesus had done. He took it all upon himself, like we read in Isaiah a few moments ago, and he became our substitute. He took our place, and he atoned for our sins. And so it's good to remember that. It's good to remember what the Lord has done for us. And so that's why we celebrate it. His body was broken. His blood was shed for us. And not only that, verse 26 tells us that we proclaim his death. So not only are we remembering what Jesus had done, but in a way, we're evangelizing others around us. You're evangelizing yourself. You're you're telling yourself about Jesus' death. You're proclaiming that Jesus died on the cross for me. You're retelling the gospel story. You're evangelizing. And to your brothers and sisters around you, and maybe if there's some in here who've never heard that message, they may be wondering, what is this that they're doing? I've said this story before. The early church actually was thought of as cannibals because people outside the church heard that they were drinking the blood and eating the body of somebody. There's a misunderstanding that that's what the bread and, and wine was. No, so it's an opportunity to tell them to correct them, that, hey, no, what we're doing is we're remembering what Jesus had done for us, and we're evangelizing other people. So you're proclaiming the Lord's death to others. And thirdly, we are proclaiming his second coming. Sometimes this is missed. You, you see back down in verse 26 again. Let me read this one more time. It says, For often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death when and or how long? Until he comes. So we partake of communion until the Lord comes back. So we're, we're reminding ourselves and other people that Jesus is coming again. There is a second coming. And we are called to practice this Keep doing or keep partaking of communion until the Lord returns. So there's a, a day off in the future that each and every one of us should look forward to when the Lord will return. This is part of the gospel. This is good news. Jesus' death was not the end, but it was the beginning of the end. 
Jesus has inaugurated the end times, which we currently live in now, and we wait for his second coming. This is good news. This is something that we should look forward to as believers. Because guess what happens? At Jesus' return, this should remind us as well as you think about what is the second coming. Well, at Jesus' return, all that is wrong with this physical world will be replaced with a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness will rule and reign. As we look at our world and maybe even look at things that are going on in your own personal life, you're like, is this ever going to get better? And the answer is yes. It may happen in our lifetime or it may happen after you pass away, but it will get better. That is the assurance and the hope of each believer in Christ. I believe there is nothing left in the prophetic calendar to stop Christ from returning. I believe he can return at any moment. And sometimes when we're having a hard day, how many of you like me go, even so, come Lord Jesus. Like right now, this would be a great time for you to come. But then again, we may be thinking, well, we also have friends and family who don't know the Lord. Because if Jesus comes back now, those people are lost for all eternity. So it should give us a sense of urgency to go out and proclaim the gospel. And I just want to say this, not only will the new heavens and new earth be here, it's also a time where we will see our loved ones who have died in Christ before us, where they will be resurrected. We sung that song, right? That the death will come, you know, the, those who are dead will come to life. And we'll see them again. And we're told about that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Those who have trusted in the Lord will rise again from the dead. They'll get their new bodies and we'll see them and rejoice with them once again. And all of us who have trusted in the Lord will also have these new resurrected bodies. And if it happens while we are here, then that's even, that's awesome. Then none of us will experience physical death. But if it doesn't happen until we die, we have that hope to look forward to. And so communion reminds us that this is not the end, that Jesus dying on the cross wasn't at the end because in three days he rose from the dead and defeated death and assured that each and every one of us who trust in him will also defeat death. So why do we celebrate communion? Well, we are again, we are reminded of what Jesus has done for us. We proclaim his death to this world and we proclaim that Jesus is coming again. So the question remains, with all these things, well, who can partake of communion? Because Paul here was speaking to the church. So who takes of communion? Is it anybody that wants to? Do you have to, like, get yourself cleaned up, you know, and go through classes of some sort before you can take communion? Do you have to be a certain age? If you've sinned today, can you take communion? I'm not going to ask for any hands of those of you who have sinned. But does that mean I can't take communion if I, you know, had a bad thought or fought with my kids or my wife this morning? Who can partake of communion? Well, the Apostle Paul gives us the answer. Look at verse 27. It says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drink eats he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Let's just stop right there. So who can partake of communion? It looks like there is some prohibition against some people taking it. 
or at least the manner in which they take it or their understanding of why they take it would be better. So first of all, let's get this out of the way. All of us are unworthy to partake of communion because we've sinned against God. But it doesn't say that you have to get cleaned up to partake of communion, spiritually speaking. It says those who partake of it in an unworthy manner. It's the unworthy manner that we take it in. It's not understanding what we are doing is what I believe he's talking about. Not understanding, not only that, not believing in it. If you don't believe that Jesus rose or died on the cross and rose from the grave for you, then you should not partake of it. Because what you're saying is, I believe Jesus died for me. I believe this is for me, and I'm partaking it. So if you don't believe that, if you're not a believer, then I would say you are the one that are not supposed to partake of communion. This is strictly for those of you who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who trust him with your life. Now that, But does that mean that, hey, what if I want to do it right now? Well, then I would say, then do that. We'll have a moment before we partake of communion where you can do that, where you can go before the Lord and ask the Lord to forgive you of your sins. Tell him that you believe in what he, he has done for you, and then you can partake of communion, and you will be taking it in a worthy manner. And not only that, the apostle tells us here to examine ourselves, and I think that goes along with what I've just said. For all of us, we need to examine, do we really believe what communion represents? Right? Sometimes we might think of it as, again, we're so far removed. Yeah, I kind of think that happened, and I'm just going to take it just to cover myself. Well, that's an unworthy manner because you don't really believe it. You don't really believe it. And so I would ask each and every one of us, before we partake, do we truly believe that this happened? And do we truly believe and trust in the Lord that it happened for me, and I trust him with my life? I don't think it has to do with, hey, did I sin today or I've been you know, on the scales? Am I better or worse than normal? No, it has nothing to do with it. It's do you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation and believe that what he did for you was for you? If you believe that, then you can partake. And again, if you don't believe that, I would encourage you this morning to consider that and to believe, in, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of your sins and then partake of communion and all those things that we talked about, your sin being forgiven, your place in all eternity with the Lord God will apply to you because of what Jesus has done, not what you have done. So, we're going to partake of communion in a moment. I just want you to remember a few things when you take communion. Because another thing is, you know, sometimes, you know, some churches do it every week, and maybe it can become too familiar. And maybe some churches don't do it enough, and so we have to remind ourselves what it means. But be aware of what you're doing as you partake of communion. I think that's another thing of, of being in an unworthy manner, is not really thinking about it. But to really think about this, when you take communion, remember these things. Number one, when you take communion, you're remembering the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You're remembering, again, what the bread represents and what the juice represents. Sorry, we don't have wine in these cups. We don't. We're from the Baptist tradition. We don't believe in that. So it doesn't really matter what's in there. But for those of you thinking, is there wine in there? No, there's no wine. It's juice. So remember, but remember what it symbolizes. The body of our Lord being broken and the blood that he spilt for us. The other thing I want you to remember when you take a communion is 
when you take of it, you're saying to yourself that you believe he took your place, that you're remembering that Jesus died for you individually. Fourthly, as you're partaking of communion, remember you are proclaiming to other people about the sacrificial love of our Lord. You're reminding everybody, hey, this is what the Lord did, and I'm celebrating it. That when you take of communion, remember you are proclaiming that, you know what, one day I won't have to do this anymore because Jesus is going to return. And it's going to be a different kind of celebration once he is with us. So again, remember the sacrifice of Jesus. Remember you're saying you believe that he took your place. Remember that you're telling others about the sacrificial love of Christ. And you are proclaiming this until he returns. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you once again for all that you do for us. And in particular, as we celebrate communion, I pray that each and every person in this room would remember the great sacrifice that you took upon yourself, that you took upon the form of human flesh, and you allowed your body to be beaten and bruised and tortured because you loved us, because of your obedience to the Father, and because you took our place. I pray that we would remember that as we partake of communion. And Lord, I also pray for those in this room who have maybe never really understood what communion was, and I pray for the first time they will truly know, and that they would cry out to you and ask for forgiveness of their past sins. And Lord, that they would commit their lives to you, to live for you until you return. I pray that if there's any in this room, Lord God, that you would give them the courage and humble them enough that they would cry out to you in this moment as they are sitting in the pew. And they would partake with us, Lord God. And again, I just pray that each and every one, would, one of us would examine ourselves and asking ourselves, do we truly believe this? And if so, we would partake in a worthy manner because of what you have done. And we pray this now, Lord, in your name. Amen.